If you would please turn in your copies of God's Word with me, and we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 6 today. Genesis chapter 6, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that is page 6 for your convenience. We looked at the first eight verses of Genesis 6 last time, and for today we're going to be covering the rest of the chapter as we look at Noah and his flood. So do listen carefully, for this is God's word. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under the earth. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing as we read and look at this text together. Oh Lord, we do come to you thankful for this passage of scripture. And Lord, I ask that you would be with us today as we look at it, to be reminded of who you are, what you've done, your view of sin, but yet your grace and mercy within it. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Noah's flood is probably a victim of unthoughtful children's book illustrations. Shows the importance of well-thought-out art in our community. That's why I'm really grateful for those that are thoughtful in their art in our midst. We tend to think about Noah's Ark, and it's this cute little boat with a giraffe's neck sticking out of it because the giraffe is too tall to fit in the thing. The rainbow's already out as the floodwaters are still there, and there's these happy little animals floating along in a boat. 
And I understand why this adorns our nursery room walls, because it's animals and we're connecting them to the children and all of that. I get it. But we must not forget that beneath those waters is all of humanity, except Noah, and all the rest of the animals, except those that have come into the ark. This is a picture of God's judgment in response to sin. I understand why that doesn't make for a cute nursery room wall, but it does help us to make sure we understand and are looking at the text as the way that we've got it, that this is a demonstration of God's judgment to us. We would never illustrate a scene from Hurricane Katrina in the way that we've portrayed Noah's Ark. Why? Because the people would recognize this was a terrible thing that happened to us. Homes were all displaced. We're floating down Main Street. People would be offended if we depicted Hurricane Katrina as a smiling event when it's not. And in the same way, Noah's flood, which makes Katrina look like a sun shower, we need to approach this in the right way. While we are, for those of us who are in Christ, 100% safe from the Lord's judgment, because all that judgment has been put on Christ, we must never forget that the God that we worship and sing about every Sunday is the same one who reacts to sin like this. So, with this in mind, we're going to take a look at our two points today. And this is the, you'll notice why I've sticked the word really in there, because I want us to actually think about this. And point number one, we're going to see that God really did flood the whole earth for human sin. He really did that. And then the second point, which we also need to keep balance, to keep all of God's revelation in our view, is that God really did save his people from it. So that's what we're going to look at as we dive in today. So as we begin here in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, we are meeting Noah. Here we're getting the These are the generations of Noah. And as we've covered many times here in Genesis, when we're going to start with a genealogy or these are the generations of, we've got a little marker here. It's the Star Wars title crawl. This is who the story is going to be about for a moment. And we've been blasting through generations of time and now slowing down to take a look at Noah. And every time the scripture slows down, this is what it wants us to look at. The slow-mo replay of redemptive history is what we're going to take a look at over the next three chapters. There's a lot in here. So let's start with our main character for this story, who is God. And that he is just, and he's shown grace to our secondary character, who's Noah. Now let's take a look at who Noah is. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Three words to describe Noah's character. Now, we tend to, in our church cultures, we throw around words all the time because we kind of know what they mean. We talk about holiness, we talk about righteousness, we talk about blamelessness. But when we're actually asked to define what is righteousness, what kind of thing? Like, well, we kind of know what it is. Like, you behave, right? There's a little bit more to it than that. Righteousness implies that there is a standard, and someone who is righteous is aligned with that standard. So here in with Noah, which we're finding out he's going to be in covenant with God, there are expectations in that, and Noah is aligning with them. That's important for us to see. This is Noah's character. 
And then he goes on and describes blameless in his generation. The word blameless, what we're translating here, gives the sense of wholeness. If you have, if you're looking at a vehicle and there is a giant hole punched through the door, you are not likely to want that vehicle. Because it's not whole. It's not complete. It's not unblemished. It's got this huge hole in it. And here, this is what Noah is doing. His righteousness and upholding God's standards is not just a part of his life. It's the whole thing. God's laws and his word shape the whole of Noah's life. And because of that, he is whole. And then it says that he walked with God. Which, remember the last time someone walked with God, they were teleported directly up into heaven. It was Enoch. You'll also, as commentators point out, this is the last time you will see somebody walk with God. And these other times you'll see people walking before God in righteousness. But here Noah is walking with God like you would walk with a friend. This is a really good person that we're looking at. Now, this does not mean that Noah is sinless. As we will find out later in chapter 9, the seeds of sin are inside Noah as well. Noah is finding favor and grace with God because he needs grace from God. But nonetheless, he really stands out as a bright light in his community and is well beyond the rest of his culture. It's a deep contrast that's going on here. You'll notice here as he goes on in verse 11, Moses is laying out for us God's view of the people. And notice how many times we see the word corrupt. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence. And he saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. Think he's trying to make a point here? What's going on in the world? It's corrupt. Now, what's interesting here, if we have, while in English translation, we are getting the words of God. I don't want to ever say otherwise. But as one of my teachers said, when you're able to look and go into the language that's behind this, which is in Hebrew for this, it's like going from black and white to color. You have all the details here in the English translation. You can understand what God is meaning to say here. But you get these extra nuances as we go along by looking at this. And with the help of commentators, because my Hebrew is not that good, we're able to see when God says, the earth is corrupt, and then he says in verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Behold, I will destroy them. There's a Hebrew pun. It's using the same word. They've corrupted themselves. They've destroyed themselves. So I'm going to destroy them back. In essence, it's like, oh, you want a world filled with violence and destruction? Here. Here's a flood. It's Romans 1, before there was Romans. People who are sinning, give them over to that. It's a dire warning for us. And in fact, if you'll look in other versions of the, bio, of, uh, the English translations, like the New American Standard, it has this it's a really subtle point in verse 13. The ESV translates as, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. But if you'll see, there's a little number there, and it will let you know there's another way we can look at this. It's a really small print if you're in, in your pew Bible. But another way that we could say is, is, the end of all flesh has come before me. In other words, seeing all of this destruction and corruption, these people are already dead. They're already destroyed. I've seen the end of flesh. Here it is. So now I'm just going to affirm in the physical what's already true in the spiritual. 
This is judgment. Earth is filled with violence, someone else had pointed out. When we were saying filled with violence, what were we were originally supposed to be filling the world with? People. Supposed to go forth and multiply, fill the earth. And instead they filled the earth with violence and corruption. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, that every intent of the people's heart was evil continually. Now, in that culture, Noah lives as the exception. That's really something, isn't it? One commentator had pointed out how hard it is to rebel against custom, to buck culture. Indeed, he put it this way, that there are very few people that don't have this diabolical proverb, he calls it. We must howl when we are among the wolves. Or to put it in the modern day, when in Rome, do as the Romans. There's a strong pull to that. When we're in a culture, to just be like this culture. There's a lot of pressure to do that. Is this not relevant to us today? Our culture celebrates things that God hates, laughs at things that God frowns on. And it's so easy for us to be drawn directly into it. Some of us might not even know that we're howling with the wolves because we've never thought to question it. It's just our culture. This is what we do. Instead of stopping to think, am I comparing myself to a standard of God's word or am I putting my standard against the world? Pastor Reader had once put it that the world is not your measuring stick. It is your mission field. To be careful how we approach this because that's what Noah here has done. And so here we can take our cues here from Noah. He's aligning himself not with anybody around him. There's no one else around him to align. But he aligns it to God's word. We need to be careful even in our so-called Christian world and culture that we can very easily look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not acting any differently than anybody else in my church or any other Christians that I know. They're not the standard. I'm not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And when the world breaks the standard, the Lord is going to show up. There's going to be judgment coming. In fact, we read about it in Matthew. It's coming back. Same planetary scale is coming for us. And just like it was in Noah, everybody was doing their same thing. It was just another Thursday when the floodwaters started. The Lord could come back today. I don't mean that in the glib way we usually talk about it. Like, it really could happen. Are you ready? Do you think about God like that? I remember I had a professor in seminary who was known as the hard professor. There's always one anywhere that you go. He would write scathing comments on people's papers. My favorite one they had put down was, you should have retitled this paper a series of opinions put together with an accompanying bad grade. So we were all terrified of him. He was the only professor that when he walked into the classroom, everybody stopped talking. Lest Dr. Ross hear something foolish we might say. is our, our Hebrew teacher. In fact, I've quoted from his commentary many times on this, just out of sheer fear. <laughs> but what this epitomizes to us, 
We held a different kind of approach to Dr. Ross because we knew his reputation. And he was actually very kind one-on-one, but in class he could be brutal. But we tend to approach God as just like another one of our buddies. We forget God has a reputation. Yes, a reputation for mercy and grace, as we'll see here in just a minute. But we can't forget there's also a reputation for judgment and discipline. He calls us to a standard. He does expect us to live to it. Not to earn salvation, not at all. But because we're part of his family, we're expected to act like we have his name. It's hard to do in this culture. And I recognize it's very easy for me, who has a church job, and it's easy for me to say, you all need to buck the culture. But just because it's easy for me to say doesn't mean that it isn't true. Because that command is coming from God, not me. I think that there will come times when it will be more and more costly to do that. But we keep in mind the Lord has a standard. But more importantly, that God really does save his people. That's what we're going to look at now. Yes, there's judgment coming. Yes, it's coming again. But there's salvation to be had. So let's see how he does it. Here with Noah... It tells him in verse 14 to make yourself an ark of gopher wood. We're not sure what kind of wood that is. And he tells him exactly how to make it. And since we can barely tolerate the metric system, much less ancient Hebrew markings, a cubit, to explain, is from basically the tip of your tallest finger to your elbow, roughly 18 inches. So what we're talking about here is a boat of about 450 feet, 50 feet tall, about 75 feet wide. So a pretty handily filling plus a football field of what he's doing here. And he's telling him all the details and how this thing is supposed to be put together. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today talking about how mathematically and from a construction standpoint this thing works. Because you can find those things online. But the answer really isn't in how Noah mathematically survived God's judgment. The reason why this thing worked is because God held it together. People are very quick to want to to make the Bible say, we can make this make mathematical sense. And you can. But as you go through it, don't forget, it's always God that's making the math work. And that all the time, God calls us to do things that like, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it's because God is behind it is why it works. It wasn't because Noah knew a whole lot about shipbuilding. He did not. But it's because God is guiding him and preserving all that he's made. And the same is true for us today. It's been well said that professionals built the Titanic and amateurs built the ark. But it's because God is the one who upholds or destroys. There's no technology that we can fear that the Lord cannot handle. So let's go on and see, I think, the real point as to what we're saying. Yes, we can 100% believe everything that Genesis is saying here. God does not lie. So I'm not saying that. But here, I think the main point that we're wanting to look at is here in verse 18. It says, I will establish my covenant with you and shall, you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Here, God is making a promise to Noah and his family. 
It's hard for us to understand what a covenant is because we don't have anything that's quite like that in our culture. It used to be marriage. It's not so much anymore. But the best thing we can come up with is a contract that you absolutely cannot get out of. And here, this is what God has done. As we'll see more about how covenants work when we get into chapter 9. But suffice it to say, God is making an unbreakable promise to Noah. And he's going to need to hang on to that promise. Because Noah's got a lot to do. When we look through the rest of this book and the rest of this chapter, we're going to skip about 100 years. And Noah has been very busy all this time. And all the commentaries that I looked at, Calvin was the only one that walked us through the practical aspects of what Noah is actually having to do here. He's got to build this. God doesn't go, boom, there it is. If you're going to start this task, it does not begin, as most of my weeks do, with a trip to Home Depot. The wood wouldn't be straight anyway. Couldn't use that stuff. Instead, he's got to pull down his own trees to put all this stuff together. He's got to get his own pitch. He's got to carry all this wood from one spot to the other. He's got to deal with all the protesters for all the mass deforestation he's causing. Hogging all the wood from other people to build his yacht. You can imagine the rest of humanity's not going to help him. In fact, it was probably true that the rest of humanity would undo some of the work he's doing just because that's what they like to do. And he's at it for a hundred years. All because God made him a promise. And then once he gets the boat together, all the animals are brought inside, get all the food put together. Animals don't stop making a stink just because they're floating. And there's a year in that. I don't see a whole lot of description of windows. This is a real thing that Noah is being asked to do. This is not fun. This is a lot of work. There is a commitment to what God has told us. Do you see the same thing perhaps in your life? There are times and there are seasons in our Christian life where we're wondering, what are we doing? We're doing things that the world tells us don't make sense. Here, Noah is building a boat in the middle of the land to to save himself from a flood coming from the sky that has never happened before. And here we're being told, live completely differently to everyone else around you no matter what it costs because there is judgment coming to take you to a place you've never seen before nor can possibly imagine. Why? Because we have a promise, a covenant with God. I can imagine Moses, who's putting this, writing all of this down, is looking at Noah's story and saying, yeah, me too. I feel you, Noah. I was out minding my own business, herding some sheep in Midian. And all of a sudden, I was told to go back to Egypt, a place where I'm wanted for murder, by the way, to go and face up the most powerful nation they had ever seen and pull out their entire economic engine to go out and worship you in a place I've never seen before. And we can hear that echo over and over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture. 
All of this is because of a promise that was made to them and a promise that he fulfilled. Now, we have one advantage that the rest of these characters that I've just mentioned did not have. These people are walking along with God while God is speaking to them from the heavens. We're walking along with a God who has done it himself, who has come down to earth and fulfilled something else that doesn't make sense. You see all those people down there? Those people that have corrupted themselves, who are sinners? We're going to rescue those people, but here's what it's going to cost. The son is going to have to die. He's going to have to live amongst these people, amongst all the hardships of the world, go on a cross and die to pay the penalty for this sin. And I was listening this week to a sermon. We, don't, we, we talk a lot about the sacrifice of Christ, as we should, but we often don't think about what the sacrifice was for the father to send his son for these people to die. To take our place. And then after that, sends us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. The whole Godhead is working and is sacrificing to make our salvation possible. Noah did a lot of things. He worked, he built, he preached, as it says later in the New Testament, to provide salvation. And Jesus has done the same, has worked and lived, has provided us a way of salvation. So when he calls us to righteousness, he calls us to this standard, we can look and say, this is what we want to do. We want to be a part of that. But if we're honest, we know we don't fulfill this standard completely. If we're really honest, we know we're not righteous. None of it of ourselves anyway. And that's where we cling to this promise. Where Jesus has broken his body for us. He has shed his blood for us. Something that we're going to see pictured here in the pouring out of the grape juice and the breaking of the bread. God has not only made a promise to us, but he also gives us a picture. As we'll see later on in Genesis 9, that picture of the Noahic covenant was a rainbow. I would imagine every time it rained after that, they would be a little nervous. But seeing the rainbow is another reminder. Nope, I see the covenant that I've made with you. Here's the promise, not that God would forget, but so that we don't forget that God has made a promise. And here for us, every month, we see a visible sign of God's covenant, a promise to us. He remembers that his son has died. He remembers that our sin has been removed from him. But we forget. So let's come and be reminded today and be fulfilled in this, to be filled up. I'll close here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's easy when we come to the table to be reminded of all the things that we've done wrong. And tend to think that God is just constantly disappointed with us, constantly has his arms crossed, and constantly rolling his eyes. Because, oh, we did this, we did that, we did the other thing. I actually hear something wonderfully encouraging. Someone pointed out to me this week, and 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Hear what Paul is saying. You're pleasing God. Now keep at it. Do it more. Grow. God's not waiting until we hit this certain level to then say, okay, you finally made it. Welcome to the club. So say, no, I see you through the eyes of Christ. I see you perfect in his righteousness. I also see your foibles too. But I see that my Holy Spirit is making an impact in you. You once were here. You once were doing this. Now you're doing this. You need to be doing this but we're getting there. And that's what this supper is to point us to. Not only remind us of what God has done and will do, but to give us energy to do so more and more. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you for this text. It's a sobering reminder of your judgment. A sobering reminder of how you do see our sin but yet also a comforting reminder that you make promises to people and you uphold those promises to your people. You've promised to forgive our sins if we put our trust in you. You've promised to change us. So, Father, you've promised. Please fulfill that promise in us as we know you will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.